Years ago, uh, my, my wife and I went on vacation to the Caribbean island of Barbados. And we went there for 12 days. And Barbados is beautiful, but it's not that beautiful. <laughs> 12 days was like four days too long in Barbados. And what also made this kind of so, so tough is that on the last day, like my wife and I were, were having dinner and the clouds started getting really, really dark. And all of a sudden we realized that this tropical storm that eventually turned into a hurricane was coming. And that night, the last night that we were there, we got hit with a tropical storm. So we ran to the airport, we tried to get out and everything was delayed right, sending in long lines, but we just wanted to get out of there. And eventually we did, and we landed in Florida around dinner time, but our plane didn't leave until the next morning. Have you ever had this experience? And so I'm like, okay, I'm not paying $200. (laughs) So my wife and I slept on the floor. And if you've ever done this, you kind of sleep on the floor and you hug your luggage because you're scared it's not going to get stolen or something. And you're sleeping, but you're sleeping with one eye open. It wasn't my finest moment as a husband. But then we woke up, we took another plane and then another plane, and eventually we got home in Portland. And honestly, when, you, when you've experienced this, when you've traveled, and you, you, your motivation is you just want to get home. You guys, you guys know this? Some of you travel for work and you know what it's like. There are those moments where you just want to go home. You just want to sleep in your bed. You just want to be in a kitchen where the knives and the forks are in the right place. And I'm telling you, there is a right place and a wrong place to put your forks. If you don't know where they're supposed to go, I'll come to your house and tell you. (laughs) It's hard to get home, though, sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes, and I don't know what this tells you about my kind of mental psychology or if there's something wrong with me, but I have a reoccurring dream that I'm trying to get home and like everything in the world is against me getting home. It's why we come up with beautiful kind of trite sayings. Home is where the heart is. So when we're away from home, it almost feels like our heart isn't whole, that we're We can't relax. We can't be at peace or at rest. And this longing, I really do think, this longing for home, it's universal. And in many ways, this is the story of the Bible. I mean, this is the story of the history of humanity. God gave a garden home to the first people, Adam and Eve. A beautiful home. A beautiful garden home. And then, because their sin God gives them an eviction notice, and they lose their home. And then God, once again, through Moses and Joshua and others, and through the promise of Abraham, God says, I'm going to give you a new home. And so they arrive at the promised land, their new home with a new relationship with God. God in their midst, home, uh, sort of. But once again, the, the sins of the first Man and woman, Adam and Eve, trickles down time. And eventually they get an eviction notice. And they go into captivity. They go into exile. And yet the prophet said that though they were evicted on, the, on small print, on that eviction notice, was a promise that after 70 years, 
that eviction notice would be expired and they could go home. But getting home, just like getting home from Barbados or getting home anytime, it's complicated. It's hard. Because the real thing when you, the real aspect of going home is home isn't just a place. We've all been at home, but if you have conflict with people in your home, it doesn't feel like home. And so for Daniel and the people of God living in captivity, living in Babylon, living in exile, the question was, how do we get home? But it was more than that. It was, how do we go home and stay home without threat of eviction? Sometimes getting home is complicated. But even more complicated than getting home is staying home. And that's what Daniel 9 is all about. How do God's people go home? Look there in the first two verses with me. Verse 1 of chapter 9 and 2 sets up the context of this whole chapter, the setting. In the first year of Darius, the son of Aha, by descent, Amid, who was made king over the realm of Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. We'll stop there. Okay, so right there we got, we're kind of oriented to, to where we are in the kind of the flow of history. We're right back into chapter 5, or, or the events after chapter 5, probably right before chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. So somewhere in between there. So Babylon has fallen to the Medo-Persian Empire. And this new regime, Daniel's doing something in the midst of this new regime. Or rather, he's reading something, isn't he? He's reading his Bible. And particularly, verse 2, we, we, he's reading Jeremiah. And we know that actually, even more particular than that, he's reading chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Because in that chapter, Jeremiah the prophet tells the people of God that after 70 years of exile, they'll return. We see that in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. So they're evicted, but Jeremiah reminds God's people that that eviction notice is going to expire after 70 years. Now, this is good news, isn't it? Daniel's reading his Bible going, hey, um, I've been here 68 years. He's looking at his clock and going, God doesn't break his word. The end is here. And so you might think, oh, you know, he's got some summer property. He's pretty high up in the government. He's got, I'm guessing, some money. So he's selling property, right? He's making plans. He booked an airline on Delta to get back, right? He's doing all that stuff, right? No. He doesn't make plans. He does something far greater. He prays. And so from verse 3 to verse 18, we have this beautiful, beautiful prayer of confession. I'm going to read all of it. But I would just commend you and encourage you. Read this this week. It is a beautiful prayer of confession. And particularly when you get towards the end of it, A few times I just staggered in the beauty of this confession. Verse 3. 
Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to all our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of our Lord God by walking in his laws, which set before him by the servants and the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He was confirmed He has confirmed his word, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there is not done anything like this that is done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses and all the calamity upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning turning from our iniquities and getting insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. We'll stop there. In these few verses, these 11 verses, Daniel prays this beautiful and heart-wrenching prayer of confession. And in verse 3, he, he, he outwardly kind of uh, puts on clothing that would kind of expose the inward contrition of his heart. So he, he puts on funeral clothes. That's what sackcloth and ashes are. He, he wants to mimic outwardly what's going on inwardly. And then what we see in these 11 verses isn't a prayer of praise or thanksgiving. It's a confession. And there's kind of two major themes, kind of theological themes that, that Daniel is praying about. And basically it's God is righteous and they are not. Let me just point them out. So verse 5. O Lord, the great awesome God. Then verse 7, you belong righteousness. Then verse 9, mercy and forgiveness belong to our Lord. Verse 14, God is, once again, righteous. And so all throughout this prayer, in all these different languages and images and metaphors, Daniel's saying that God is holy, sovereign, good, and righteous, and just. But though he puts this up, God's righteousness, he also puts up, as he's looking at God, the unrighteousness of the people. Look there at Daniel uh, chapter 9, verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong, acted 
wickedly rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. That's five different phrases or words all to describe the same reality. Sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and rules. All different language, all description of the same reality. God's people have sinned. But I don't know if you noticed the manifestation of their sin. Like Hosea will frame the, um, the, the sin of the people as an adulterous relationship. Um, Amos talks about that their sin of not loving one another and going into league with other nations. And so different prophets and different texts talk about their sin in different ways. But here, Daniel's confessing the sin, a particular sin. It's the sin of rejecting God's word. Did you notice it? Verse 5 and 6, we have not listened to the prophets. Verse 10 and 11, say that they have not obeyed the voice of God. They then have walked away from God's law, refused to hear God's voice. Verse 13, once again, same thing. They have neglected God's word spoken through Moses. So here Daniel is saying that the people's sins that he's confessing manifest, kind of, if you boil it all down, it boils down to their failure to listen, hear, and heed the very voice of God, the word of God, whether in written form or in preached form through the prophets. Sometimes we think of sin as just breaking rules, doing the wrong things, sins of omission, commission, and Certainly that's true, but at its fundamental point, sin, when you boil it down deep enough, sin is a breaking of God's word. It's not listening to God's word. It's saying, oh, I know better. My words, my idea of your words are better than your words. And as we know, all sin has its consequence. And the consequence of their sin, Daniel lays out crystal clear. The, The language that he talks about is the language of cursing, particularly covenantal curses. So if you remember in the Mosaic law, Moses has this, God enters into a covenant with his people and says there are blessings for obedience. And in Deuteronomy 28, he says there are curses for disobedience. And one of the covenantal curses is an eviction notice from the land. And so Daniel's clear and says, The eviction notice, the captivity, the exile, it is a consequence of our sin, a consequence that we didn't listen to God's word, a consequence of the nature of our rebellion against God, and it is nothing short of just the covenantal curses falling on God's people. And there's a tragedy in this, a sort of sober tragedy in Daniel's confession. Because at the end... In verse 14 and 15, but particularly 15, he talks about the Exodus and about how God brought the people out of Egypt. And he hints at it, but he doesn't even, it's as if Daniel's saying, oh God, you were so gracious to us to, to bring us out, my, 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 our, our fathers and our mothers out from Egypt, but maybe we're so far gone, I don't, I, I don't even know if I should ask that you would do it again. Maybe we're so far gone. Exile is exile from the land, and then if you broaden it out, exile from God is a consequence of our sin. And I think what 
makes this so instructive to us is that Daniel, he makes no excuses. In the New Testament, Paul talks about this. He, he talks about, in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. They look alike in their manifestations, but they are drastically different. Worldly sorrow has the focus of self. I'm sorry I got caught. It, this hurts. I sinned, and I don't like the consequence of my sin. Ah, the embarrassment, the shame, the guilt. The center of worldly sorrow is the self. Feeling sorry for yourself. But godly sorrow has a different kind of bullseye. It's not looking at the self fundamentally. It's looking at God. And that's what Daniel does, doesn't it? He's not looking at himself. He's not saying like, well, I, I mean, there's a lot of nations and they hated us. And so I mean, we had to get, he doesn't get into any of that stuff. He just says, God, we screwed up. We sinned. We didn't listen to your word. You sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and we silenced them. We thought we knew better. And the curses that came on us, we deserved it. You were right and just and good in doing that. He doesn't turn it on himself and the shame that they're experiencing in captivity. He turns the beacon of light on God himself and the justice of God in bringing about this consequence of their sin. Yeah, one of the things I think is interesting is one of the questions that I had this week that I don't know if you have, but I think is helpful to figure out how we put all of chapter 9 together why does Daniel pray a prayer of confession? Chapter, or, uh, verse 1 and 2 says that he's got his, let's just say he's got his Bible open. He's reading Jeremiah 29. It, the, the year is almost there. He, they're going to go back. Why isn't he praising God? Like, why isn't he like, this is great. The year's almost here. Praise God. Thanks be to God. He's going to restore Jerusalem. Why does he confess? Where does this confession come from? Well, I think it's clear from this confession that Deuteronomy is not the only book that he's meditating on. He's also meditating on Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30. And we know that because he's talking about these covenantal curses, and that's where they show up in the Old Testament. And they are. They, they, they are terrifying. They, they are, these covenantal curses look like the plagues in Egypt. That's how they're described. But even in the midst of these covenantal curses, there's hope. Let me read just uh, a few verses in Leviticus 26, starting in verse 40. You can flip there if you do it quickly. If not, just listen to me as I read the hope, even when the curses fall on God's people, particularly the curse of exile. Verse 40, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they have committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. That's exile. That's captivity. If then they do all that, their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then, this is what God's going to do, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, I will remember my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, and I will restore the land. God promises exile, and yet he promises even in the curses, 
he promises hope that if they turn back to God, if they repent, if they confess their sins, that would be the prerequisite for them going back. So confession and repentance is, and it is still today, it is the prerequisite to going back to God, right? Jesus comes on the scene. What does he say? Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And so before they can go back, Daniel's reading his Bible and saying, we got we to gotta confess. We got to repent. And so Daniel uses this language. Seven times Daniel says we. Eight times he says us. Daniel identifies himself with the people of God confesses their sins and he does so as a prerequisite to the promises of blessing that God would pour out for a people who repent of their sins and return back to God. Because only then when he confesses those sins finally in verse 16 he makes his plea. Look at it with me. Verse 16 finally after 11 verses of confession As a prerequisite, now Daniel, verse 16, makes his plea. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our father's sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayers of the servant and to the pleas for mercy for your own sake. O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel confesses his sin, and then he makes this bold prayer. He asks God to restore Jerusalem. He asks God to rebuild Jerusalem. And particularly, the language is to restore the sanctuary, the temple. And it's clear why. We see it in verse 19. Because without a temple, without a sanctuary, there is no forgiveness. And so he prays and says, God, God, restore the sanctuary, the temple of God. And it really is a bold prayer, but it's not presumptuous. Because God has promised that he's going to do this. So all he's doing is saying, God, I'm calling on you to do what you said you were going to do in Jeremiah. Rebuild your, your sanctuary, your temple. But, but it's not just that. Because of this language of forgiveness, it's restore us, God. Restore us once again to you so that we can have an Edenic-like fellowship with you. God, we want to go home, but we don't want to go home if you're not there. We want to go home so that we can have fellowship with you, so that we can have a relationship with you, so we can be forgiven by you. Daniel's asking, after confessing this, and he's asking for a restored relationship with God. And he bases this prayer and this plea. He doesn't say, 
well, because I've now repented and I'm a good person, or he doesn't treat God like a Santa Claus, like, okay, uh, now that we're on the nice list, now we can, do you notice it? He says, not because of our righteousness, as if they had any. He doesn't bank on their goodness, on their righteousness, even that, oh, well, we're Israel. He banks on the mercy of God and then says, because your name is at stake. Do you notice that language? Because Jerusalem has your name on it. Because people are laughing at us. So don't do it for us. Do it for you, God. For your name among the nations. So Daniel prays nothing short of a a full restoration of God's people to the land and to their God. I think sometimes we, we wonder, when we pray these sort of prayers, we're wondering, is God listening? Here's the amazing thing. This is staggering. God listens to our prayers. That's what we see next. God sends Gabriel in response to his prayer, and Gabriel has showed up again. And in verse 20 through 23, he shows up in answer to the pleas of Daniel. And starting in verse 24, he gives him a vision. Now I'm going to read the vision. The vision is complicated. There is some ambiguity in this vision. And I'm certain of this, not all of us are going to agree on the interpretation of this vision. I am about 95% convinced that I'm wrong somewhere. I just don't know where. All right? So let's all give each other a bit of grace. But don't worry, I'm not going to punt. I'm going to interpret it. Humbly, hopefully. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of this word to the restore and build Jerusalem to the coming um, of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven Weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and, the, and he shall make a strong covenant with many. For a week and for half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Clear, right? There are many different ways in which you can interpret this. This week I read eight different views of interpreting this vision. And in many ways, I think all of them, because all of them are, 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 are kind of argued by Christians who take the Bible seriously. And yet all of them have their merits, but all of them have some of their problems. They each have problems. And so as we interpret this vision, I think in some sense what you, we need to do is step back and say, well, what is most clear 
Because I think the worst thing we can do is get so lost in the details and in the weeds that we miss what Daniel's actually doing in the broader chapter of 9. Because Daniel has a message to us. And it's an important message. I say that because I think deep down we want to know what each of these characters, these images, what they point to. You know, at what point in history is this fulfilled? In what time frame is that fulfilled? We have this sort of idea. But there's ambiguity here. And we need to embrace one level of ambiguity. So, verse 24. In verse 24 is the first time we read of these 70 weeks or 77s. Now, you know that 7 and then 10, which makes 70, are both just highly important letter, or, um, numbers, right? 7 is the day of completion. Think of this, 7 days of creation in which God created it all. And then you get 10, which is the number of fullness, right? Think of the 10 plagues on Egypt. That was God's full wrath on Egypt. Or think of the 10 commandments, which is a summary of the full kind of counsel of God or law of God. And so what we do know is that these 70 weeks are a designated, complete, full, perfect, decreed amount of time in which God is going to accomplish something, something amazing, something that is of greater jubilee than any of us can imagine. In these 70 weeks, God is going to restore his people, restore his people such that they will never get another eviction notice again. We read also in these 70 weeks that it's divided up into three chunks, kind of three time frames. So in verse 25, we have the first seven weeks. And in this era, a word goes out. Now, is that word from the prophet Jeremiah? Is that word from Daniel? Is that word from Cyrus? Is that word from Artaxerxes? We can debate that. But what we do know is that in this time frame, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. A prince, an anointed one, I think probably Ezra comes. And we know from history that he rebuilds the temple and the sanctuary. Now, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. That first seven weeks, really good news, right? He's been praying about the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple. And God says in the first seven weeks, this time frame, it's going to happen. But hold our horses, right? Because that's just the first time period. Then in the second half of verse 25, we have this next era, 62 weeks. Jerusalem's going to be restored, temple rebuilt, water systems and running. So like commerce is going to happen and things are going to be going great, except for these are going to be times of trouble. And we know that after Jerusalem's rebuilt, walls are rebuilt, temple's rebuilt, the altar's rebuilt, we have Times of trouble. We've we've seen this before, right? After the Medo-Persians, Greece rises up. And then you've got Antiochus Epiphany. You've then got Rome that's going to come. I mean, you've got oppressor after oppressor. I mean, from the point of the rebuilding of the temple and Jerusalem, it would be an understatement to say that these are times of trouble. Times of conflict. Well, then after these 62 weeks are up, And if we're counting, we got one more week to make 70. An anointed one is cut off. And if your gut reaction is, that sounds like Jesus, I think you're right. That's Jesus. A prince is going to be raised up 
who's going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. That sure sounds like the Roman uh, um, army captain Titus, who in 70 AD destroyed part, a lot of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And he did it completely. This language of doing it by flood, I think, is harkening back to the image of Noah, right? When God completely destroyed humanity, and he's saying, oh, this, the destruction of the temple is going to be complete. Which we know from history happened. Then in verse 26 and 27, we, we've, we've got this idea of covenant. And some of you might, the person who's going to come and make a covenant, some of you might go, okay, that's talking about the future, right before the millennial reign and the Antichrist. That is a reading. The ambiguity of this allows for this. And I think the most natural reading is, this too is talking about Christ. That Christ makes a covenant the, the, the real debate is, who is this he? And I think the he isn't this prince. The he is the cutoff one who makes a covenant, a new covenant in his blood with his people. And the sacrificial system is over. I mean, Hebrews 10 tells us this, that when Christ had offered for a time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God where there is forgiveness of sin. There is no longer an offering for sin. Christ's death finally and fully ended the sacrificial system. One sin for all sin, no longer needing a temple or a sanctuary. Christ did that. And then verse 27, we, we read this, and I'm just going to read the, kind of the, a more literal kind of uh, translation. On the wing of desolate, in the, on the wing of a desolate thing is a desolator until the decree end and it's poured out on the desolator. And here, too, I think what he's saying is that there's going to be a desolator who's going to desecrate the, the altar and the worship of God's people, but he's going to be destroyed. And I think, if we're just taking it, that's probably once again Titus and in reference to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, my guess is that maybe you read this a little bit differently than me. That's fine. But I'm convinced that the most important thing, because of the ambiguity, is that Daniel has an important message for us. And it's not, let's just debate on all this happens, and it's not figuring out, reading the newspaper, and be like, oh, it sure looks like this ruler who's coming and, and doing kind of like uh, newspaper eschatology. That's not the point that Daniel wants us to understand. We, we, we come to Daniel 9 and we assume that, he, that this vision isn't answering the, the win question. If I could convince you of anything, it's that that's not the question that Gabriel comes to answer. The fundamental question is not when, it's how. How are God's people going home? How can God's people be restored to God? How can they exile, not just physically, but spiritually, finally be fulfilled? When can God's people finally go back to Eden? How is this going to happen? And in the midst of all the ambiguity that we could find out, this is not ambiguous at all. Look there in verse 24. There's a six-full way in which, uh, which Gabriel in this vision tells Daniel that this is going to all be accomplished. Finish transgression. Two, to put an end to sin. Three, to atone for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal both vision and prophet. Six, to anoint a most holy. And you could translate it 
and you probably in your English Bibles it'll have a little footnote. It's either place or one. You gotta you gotta make that interpretive um, jump yourself. Those six things, they all have their fulfillment in Christ Jesus, don't they? What Daniel is understanding, or better put, maybe he's not understanding, that doesn't matter. What Daniel is hearing as it relates to this vision is how God's people are getting home. And it's going to take nothing short of God's intervention. In order for Daniel and the people of God to safely and securely go home, they need someone to pay for their sins. Daniel had just confessed using language like sin, uh, transgression, iniquity. And then this vision says there's going to be a day when all of that, you're not just going to confess those sin, they're going to be fully and finally taken care of. Not this endless cycle of more and more animal sacrifices, but there will be a time when all sins, it says put an end to sin, finish transgression, atone for iniquity. And Jesus does this, doesn't he? Jesus atones in his life and death. He atones. He makes at one mint. He makes us one with God through his life, death, and the vindication of his resurrection. There's no longer need of a sacrifice because Jesus is the full and final and complete sacrifice for sin. And we are forgiven fully and finally from sin in Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus. And then this everlasting righteousness that's going in, it's not a righteousness that is, you know, merited. It's an alien righteousness. It's an alien righteousness in the sense that it's Christ's righteousness, God's righteousness in which he gives to you everlastingly. Then there's this language of sealing both vision and profit. The the idea of sealing has the idea of authenticating. And what does Jesus do? He authenticates all of the prophecies, all of the visions, everything in the Old Testament, he authenticates in his life, death, and resurrection. It's why Paul says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Jesus seals in his life, death, and resurrection, in his teaching ministry, he seals both prophet and vision. Jesus' name is even, we call him Jesus Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. I think a better, not just to anoint a holy place, I think it might be a holy person or a holy one. Jesus is the anointed one who's going to accomplish all of this. So when we take all of chapter 9, in the midst of all of its sort of ambiguity, I think this is crystal clear. Jesus Christ is the culmination of, of this vision in his life, death, and resurrection. But there's a problem. Because I don't know about you, though Jesus paid for sin, died for sin, that we can be forgiven in sin when we turn to him and repent of our sin, though he has made atonement fully and finally, though he is the the complete and utter sacrifice, I'm still homesick. I don't know about you. I don't feel like I'm home. And so in that sense, I'm right where Daniel's at. Only he's looking forward to the first coming of Christ, but we're here today still homesick, 
still longing, had this inconsolable longing, as Lewis talks about, for home. Because Christ has to come again. We, in between the first and second advent of Christ, we still experience in some degree what Daniel experienced, which is this disorientation, this longing, this hope for home. I think the closest maybe I ever experience home, heavenly home, at rest with God, peace, no suffering, the closest I think on earth that you can get to the feeling of home is when we gather as a church right now. You want, you, you want the greatest apologetic for why we gather? This is as close to heaven, this side of death, that any of us could get. We are gathered right now, even with the, the saints in heaven, all gathering, singing, praying, listening to God's word. We are, in a sense, an embassy of heaven. And yet we still live in a broken world. We still live in the midst of trouble. We've been forgiven of sin, but we still have not been purged of sin. We still long for home. And so, in the midst of all this, Daniel comes to us and says, well, in the same way I came first, Christ is going to come again. And we can look forward to his second coming as we do what Daniel did. Not get anxious or worried about how all this is going to take place or when this is going to take place. But know this, God is faithful. At the complete time, the perfect time, the fullness of time, Christ will, like he did the first time, he's going to return a second time. And it's going to be good. Great. It is going to be like the greatest jubilee ever. Christ will usher in a kingdom that will have no end. And so as we meditate on his first coming and are thankful for all he's done, let us remember again that he will come again. And as we're faithful, as we live in this broken world, we can remind ourselves through all of the promises that he has fulfilled and all the promises he has yet to fulfill that it's going to be okay and that we In the end, we get to go home. So let that longing, let that desire, don't numb it, don't push it down. That's a good thing. You're meant, this side of heaven, to long for home. Many have gone home. And we pray that we persevere until that day. Let's pray. God, we, um, we know that in our sin, all of us should be kicked out of our houses. And yet, when we meditate on the person and work of Christ and the cost that it took to bring us home, we want to say thank you. Lord, we also know that this is a hard, broken world, wars, turmoil, hardship. And so we pray, Lord, for grace and mercy. We pray that together as a church, we would encourage each other towards faithfulness, towards worship, 
towards the continued confession of our sin, knowing that you have and will forgive us. We long for home, Lord. Stoke that hunger for home all the more in our hearts. Lord, we love you. We know that home is where the heart is. And we know our heart is with Christ. Amen.